to the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what we say here, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm of co- um, Yeah, I can, I can talk this morning. I'm, of course, your host, Samson Kovach. Um, we are on part four of our Bible series here, where we are going to continue talking about the intentional errors that um, scribes made and that trans... Not, not well, translators and uh, transmitters made. Um, kind of going to be going back and forth with those because the way that um, people translated the Bible is also a, a point of concern, just as much as the transmission of it. Now, as we've talked about before, you know, how do we know that we have the right words and all that stuff? The transmission is the thing that is where people are copying the Greek out and they're just going from one, you know, word to the next or one phrase to the next or however they're doing it, whatever their structure is, where the translation is taking it from one language and putting it into another language. And when that happens, you know, you have to compare those languages as well. We have a lot of different Bibles in the English language and they're all worded differently. You know, while if they're worded differently, is there any implication that between one English translation and another English translation, you might have some stuff that's actually put in there that shouldn't be in there or stuff that's removed that you don't think should be removed. We, we touched on this a little bit before, um, with the, uh, the woman caught in the act of adultery in, um, John chapter seven, verse 53, if you remember from last week. And, and, you know, we discussed that in the original manuscripts, that's not supposed to be there, but some of your English Bibles have it in there. You know, some, uh, pretty, I think all, pretty much all I could, I could say have a footnote that says, you know, not in the earliest manuscripts. And, um, you know, we also looked at the long ending of Mark and we looked at, um, I think it was John chapter five, verse four. We also looked at, so today we're going to be kind of staying along that same vein of, you know, whenever we are translating it into English and today, what we have today, what, when you pick up your new Testament and you read it, like what's in front of you. So we're going to look at some of those verses and kind of go through some of the implications of them, because these are, you know, intentional quote unquote errors that we said, this is the 1%, not the 99 that had no theological difference, but this may have some theological implications. So, hey, stay tuned. This is going to be fun. All right. So, you know, we hit the, uh, hit the music mark there. Some people have asked, why do you have that music mark right there? Well, I like to do, you know, a little bit of an introduction, of course, in, in the beginning of, uh, you know, each podcast. And I don't want to run too long and I don't want to just like run over into stuff like I did in like the, the first few podcasts. I want to just have a, you know, a, a space where I could just kind of talk. Um, and that, uh, part in the song, um, just helps me to, you know, stay focused on what I need to say in the time I need to say. And it hits about the three minute mark roughly, um, you know, when that, when that occurs for me. Um, and 
I, I like to use it as kind of a summary time also before, you know, to catch people up on what's going on. I really should say that, hey, you know, visit me at samsonstick.com. You can uh, find all the archives of all these podcasts in the Salvation um, section. You'll find all uh, 22 podcast episodes for um, the, the discussion we did on justification and in the Bible series section, you're going to find, you know, all of these in there as well. And, um, I, cause I think, I forget how many iTunes let's sit there, but I know that there's, uh, quite a few, maybe six of them that of, of the podcast for the salvation series that you can't get in iTunes anymore because as you know, you put so many in there, uh, you know, they start dropping off. I don't know where it's at, maybe around a hundred or so. And then you lose those other ones. So that's a you know good place to go, good resource um, if you want to listen back to all these things. They all have download links too, so you can download them on onto your computer and uh, take them with you wherever wherever you want to go. Share them with people. Um, you can also visit the uh, Facebook page to make comments. Um, anything that you'd like me to review too, uh, the Theology Pit on Facebook. But um, right now, I want to get into what we're talking about here with these intentional errors and. You know, there are some of them where, especially if you go on YouTube or you go around the interwebs in, in different places where you're going to find people that are specifically going to be upset about um, these particular verses. Uh, some people use these verses to deny Christian doctrines. Uh, and whenever we get to that, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to get into the different uh, interpretations of scripture, different ways that people use scripture, I should say. There's five main uh, different ways that people use scripture. But um, I, I, I just want to talk about some of these um, intentional errors. And uh, I think that after we talk about the intentional errors, um, maybe we will go into the way that people look at the Bible. But I might not want to do that before I go through the the canonization aspect, or, or maybe I will, because the canonization aspect, I mean, that that takes a little bit of time to get through. There's there's a lot there and how these books were chosen to be in, in what we call the Bible and why, you know, different Bibles have different numbers of books. So um, let's just stick with the intentional errors. Let's not let me go off on a, on a tangent here. And then um, we'll see where it goes for the next week. So if you want to you know, read along with me here and you want to kind of jump into this with me, um, you can open your Bibles up and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. And we're also going to be looking at Mark 13, 32 and how these two parts of scripture that talk about the same thing are different. There's internal evidence that, that shows that they're different, but there's also this external evidence of what we have in our Bibles that show that they're, they're different. Okay. So what we tend to have in, in this, and I'm going to read it out of Mark first. Okay. So Mark 13, 32. And the reason why is because as we've discussed in, in these talks is that Mark came first and Luke and Matthew used Mark as their, as their template. And they were also reading it. So they were probably also taking some of the wording from it, you know, more than likely. I don't see why not. I don't see any reason to say, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything, you know, any reason to say like no to all that. But, um, Mark 13, 32 
um, reads as follows, and I'm reading out of the New English Translation, the, the Net Bible here. I might read out of some uh, different translations uh, later on just to kind of get a, um, you know, an idea of how some other wordings can be for, for these passages. So um, under the title, I have the title of Be Ready here. Um, Jesus says, uh, but as for the day or the hour, no one knows it, neither the angels in heaven nor the son, except the father. Okay. So what is going on here is, you know, the disciples are kind of asking, you know, when are you going to return? Like, when is the end of the world going to be the resurrection, the whole arrival of the son of man, like all of that stuff that's, that's, you know, going on. When's that all going to happen? And here Jesus is saying, well, I don't know. I I don't know. You know, only, only the father knows. Um, a lot of Christians today would have a problem with that. They might have a problem with me saying that because if, if Jesus is God, and I think I talked about this in the, in the first podcast, um, with somebody writing that he didn't know anything. And if, and if you've listened to the first podcast in the series, you'll know the answer to this, my answer to this and, and historically the church's answer to this, but this can bother a lot of people and people that don't know church history, people that don't know theology and that, you know, don't understand scripture. These are the ones that you'll find on YouTube and on, you know, the internet and everything. And, and, sites like I was uh, reading from saying that, you know, you shouldn't worship Jesus as God because he's not God. He's just a man. And this is the verse that, that shows it, but we're focusing on what this does to scripture. Okay. You read something like that. And what if it makes you start thinking that, Hey, this really makes it sound like Jesus isn't God. Maybe we should change that. Maybe we should make some changes here or there. Well, when you look at the parallel of this verse, and we talked about the synoptic gospels last time, and Matthew is in our, our synoptic, you know, one, one of the three, um, he states it this way in um, uh, chapter 24, verse 36 of the book of Matthew. But as for the, that day and hour, no one knows it, not even the angels in heaven, Except the Father alone. So it would seem like, and it's out of the Net Bible again. So you have to ask yourself, why, why is the Son of Man not in there? Why is that verse taken out? You know, why, why would somebody remove that? That does, it just doesn't make sense because, um, you know, there are some important early Alexandrian and Western manuscripts, and we talked about those last week, that those were the smaller ones and the, and, the, and the better ones, that they don't have that word in there, okay? So if, if they're that, that, that phrase, the, um, uh, you know, nor the sun, okay? Um, it, it, it seems that by having that omitted, that Jesus knows but nobody else does. And this is, this sends, it tends to lend the credibility to Jesus being divine. Okay. The question here is, is that, you know, if people are uncomfortable with this, it was changed in Matthew, but it wasn't changed in Mark. And that seems kind of strange because 
let's say that hypothetically you were a scribe and you're copying out the New Testament manuscript for people. Okay, you're doing this. And you are taking it upon yourself. And maybe this is the, I don't know, the, the monastery that you're in. Okay, the, the, in the place where you, you guys are copying out hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts over your life. Okay, that's, that's what you're doing. And you all have a collective goal that we are going to smooth things out theologically. Okay. Now, with Jesus being divine, if you remember from the last series of podcasts, I mean, I, I, I touched on Christology a little bit in, in our soteriology, and, and you understand the arguments in the fourth century over Jesus being of similar substance, homoousion, or the same substance, homoousion, of the Father. And that is where the argument is really sticking. Now, before then, um, the argument was not whether or not Jesus was divine. Everybody accepted that. The argument with the... um, the, the Gnostics and the Stoics were that he wasn't human. So Mark's gospel at that time, by showing that Jesus didn't know something, lends to the credibility of his humanity. And that would really stick in the craw of those who were saying he wasn't a real human being. So, I mean, contrary to the thought that um, and if you just noticed a, a sound difference, I, I, I felt like I was overmodulating a little bit, so I'm uh, you know adjusting the the microphone here, kind of bring it back. Um, so if if the uh, philosophical and theological argument at the time is that Jesus is not human, okay, that he is divine, but he is not human, well, Mark's gospel, which came out first which seems to be the within the fight that you see in the New Testament um, that people uh, that the the disciples and the apostles are writing about disciple apostles um, you know when when they say things like no you know we confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh um, the flesh with our, which our hands have touched um, they have him eating, they have him drinking, they have him doing human things, sleeping. I mean, you know, very physical things, died a very physical death, rose a very physical resurrection. It's all pointing towards the physical. It's all pointing towards him being human. Okay. In the fourth century, you know, you have this whole argument. Okay. We know that he was divine. Everybody admits that he was divine. That's not, that's not an issue. Um, how divine is he? Is he similar to God in, in substance or is he the same in substance? And then once that was settled, once they said at the council of Nicaea in uh, 325, and then at Constantinople in 381, uh, with the Constantinople Nicene creed that's recited in churches from, from then until now, um, that no, he is of the same substance with the father in the fifth century. Then, uh, you had the understanding and the, the council that came together, uh, I think it was the Council of Orange, that said, um, that really uh, talked about his humanity. No, he is fully human, 100% human. 
So um, when, when you look at this, the church fathers, when you read through their commentaries uh, and, and you go to these particular passages in their commentaries in um, uh, Matthew 24 and Mark, Mark 32, um, they, especially Mark 32, they have no problem with nor the son being in there of him not knowing he had to fully represent us. Remember at that time, the, their soteriology, their understanding of salvation, the, the prominent, one of the prominent views of, of salvation was the recapitulation view of the atonement that Jesus had to live the perfect life and redo everything for us everywhere. Every way that Adam failed, that's what Christ had to redo. So if he had to do that, then they're not going to have a problem with verses in the Bible showing the limits of humanity, of him being human. That's, that's not a problem whatsoever. You don't start to see church fathers having a problem, excuse me, having a problem with this nor the son thing until the fourth century. Okay. And in, into the fifth century, um, St. Uh, Basil or Basil, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, he, has problems with this. He was, he was born in, in 330 AD and he died in uh, 379. So he's kind of in the midst of this, you know, Jesus is, you know, fully divine thing. Cause they believe, you know, fully man, fully divine. So he's in between the councils of Nicaea and of orange. Okay. And I hope I'm getting the right council. Cause I'm just throwing that off my top of my head there with the council of orange. Um, so he's in between these and he's before um, Constantinople, which they just added um, the what's called the filia qui clause uh, and of the son that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and of the son. Um, so that's 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 really not an issue in this case. I'm just you know, wanted to clarify that it's not like Constantinople changed things radically. They just um, added, you know, that uh, that phrase in there. Uh, that was probably the big the big thing that happened at that time that irritated, you know, the other churches because it wasn't seen completely as ecumenical, uh, which means that everybody, all, all churches from the world were represented and it, it came together. But um, Basil would just, he would just rather um, reinterpret it than change it. Okay. He wouldn't want to say, you know, neither the son he didn't care that, but he would reinterpret it and say, okay, look, um, you know, Jesus, and he didn't want to get into a Nestorian heresy, um, which came about later when it, when it came into, you know, the, the, what's called the hypostatic union of Christ, um, that he is fully God and fully man, um, hypostatic. Think of, think of a hypodermic needle. Hypo means under and derma. Um, you know, if you've ever been to a dermatologist under the skin, um, stasia is, um, uh, substance. So hypostatic is under the substance. So when we say the hypostatic union of Christ, we say, take humanity and look at the substance of humanity and under that substance, that that is the union of, uh, the divine and, and the human of, you know, what Christ is and that those weren't to be mixed. There was, um, you know, monophysitism, which said that Jesus was a mix between humans and, um, and, and the divine, he was like a humine. So, um, if that was the case, he couldn't represent us because he could only represent other humines. There was Apollinarianism, which was just God in a body he had a, a human body, but a God mind. 
um, and people that held to that, this type of stuff would really bother them because if he had a God mind, how could he not know? You know, he had to know. And then you had um, uh, Nestorianism and Nestorianism was that there were two Jesus is. There was a divine Jesus and there was a human Jesus. And sometimes he spoke out of his humanity and sometimes he spoke out of his deity. And you had these two um, people that existed at the same time, these two uh, entities that existed at the same time. The question then comes, which one died on the cross, the human or the divine? Um, and Nestorianism uh, w- was one that was uh, very popular that moved um, south and to the east uh, this is the form of Christianity that uh, Islam was familiar with. And when you read the Quran, you can see them referring to it and uh, where where they get it from. Um, they quote certain uh, books that they claim are in the Bible. They claim are in the New Testament when they're not. And so they would say that we were wrong about that. But, you know, it was it was from Coptic Christianity. And we'll look at, you know, what what books they had in there. I think it was the, uh, the gospel of Barnabas that they, uh, that they refer to, but, um, they also refer to the, um, uh, the infancy narratives in the gospel of Thomas, that that's, that's a part of the Quran as well. Anyways, different subject kind of going off on a tangent there. So in the fourth century, like this is what you had going on. So, so Basil is like in the middle of this and he would rather reinterpret it than, than change it. So really, there was no motive to change this nor the sun to take it out until after the fourth century, because that's when, you know, the, the, the big argument was, and when you see these big theological shifts happen in church history, um, this is all on people's minds. They're very, they're hypersensitive to it. Um, whenever I, um, was doing my series on justification and I'm, I'm like this anyways with justification, but I'm hypersensitive to it and people's language to, uh, justification when they talk about their salvation. And because of this, when people say something, I know they don't exactly mean what they're saying, but the words that they're using lend credibility to something to the contrary that, you know, we hold to a sanitive view of, um, salvation or justification that, you know, God pours something into us and that changes us. And therefore we respond and therefore we are saved. And, you know, everything is on, did the person respond? Did they say the sinner's prayer? Did they believe? Because that's what saves you. And we went through all that before. So, you know, I'm sensitive to that at this time, because I think that that's a big concern in the church at this time. And that's why I, you know, started off this, uh, theology pit, the whole, the new thing, whenever this is kind of theology pit 2.0 here, whenever I decided to start these podcasts up and do it again, I I said, that's where I'm going to start. I'm not just going to do like topics here and there each week is a different topic and kind of go through it. I said, I'm going to do series and I am not going to stop with, start with rather, um, you know, the concept of truth, you know, dealing with epistemology and prolegomena and then moving into, you know, um, how do we know that there is a God and, you know, the concept of Godness and Trinitarianism and then getting into scripture and then getting into, and, you know, humanity and sin, or which is you know, anthropology and homartiology and then into salvation, which is soteriology. I didn't want to do that in like that systematic way. To me, the most important thing to discuss was the justification aspect, how the Christ 
atonement applies to us because I think that that's the big splintering thing in every church more than the Bible. I think that, you know, the, the Bible itself and the translation that you use and, um, you know, the, uh, the number of books in the Bible, I think that that might be number two, maybe. And that's kind of why I'm going this way. Cause you know, I think that it's, it's important to know, okay, well, what are we using and you know, how reliable is it? So, I'm seeing that justification thing in everybody's speech whenever they're talking to me. Whether or not I correct them is, is a whole nother story. It, it just all depends on the situation. So at this time, this is why you're going to get hypersensitivity with these particular verses and what would be considered these intentional errors. Now, when it comes to this whole idea of, okay, what was the original writing? Like, Matthew doesn't have it in there. Did somebody take it out? You know, was it, was it removed? Did people have like such a problem? Well, I mean, if you go to the gospel of John, um, and, and we were just there, you know, last week. Okay. Um, John chapter five, what, what I just, um, you know, spoke about in, uh, the, the, um, you know, verse four, not being there and, and the whole thing that was at the pool of Bethesda, And you had, you know, the man who was there for, um, you know, 38 years, he was paralyzed. He was, you know, according to the, um, the variant that's not in there, an angel would come and stir up the water and whoever got in would be healed and that sort of thing. Um, you know, uh, you know, when Jesus finds out that the man has been there for, so long, um, he is somewhat surprised about it. Okay. Because if he was omniscient, if he was all knowing, he would have known how long that guy had been there. But listen to how verse six reads when Jesus saw him lying there. And when he realized, what do you mean? When he realized, didn't he know how is it that Jesus come can come to a realization if he already knew, but it says when he realized that the man had been disabled a long time already, he said to him, do you want to become well? Well, if this nor the sun thing was such a big problem and, and the scribes were going through and taking this out of these, of these verses to make it seem like Jesus was in fact God and, and was omniscient, was all knowing. Well, why would they leave stuff like, in Mark, you know, Mark 13, 32, why would they leave that in there and only take it out in Matthew? That seems kind of weird and allow stuff like what John has here to, to be in there. That's odd. Also, wouldn't you want to go through if you were part of a, let's say a guild, you know, if, if you were part of a guild or part of a monastery and it's the fifth century, right? This is your mentality. We are going to smooth out the text theologically and we are going to, make these intentional errors theologically so that people will understand, you know, in the future, it'll be more clear to them that Jesus is in fact God. So why wouldn't they do that with Mark and John? Why would they only do that with Matthew? That seems really, really strange. Okay. Um, Origen noticed this, but he also noticed that uh, post-resurrection and origin was in the, um, uh, second century. Okay. Second century, early, th- early third century, I believe. Um, 
post-resurrection that Jesus was all-knowing. Pre-resurrection, he was not. But post-resurrection, he seemed to be. In Acts 1, um, whenever they ask um, you know, Jesus when he's going to return, he says to them, it's not for you to know. Not that he doesn't know, but it's not for you to know. It's not for them to know. It's not for anybody to know. Okay, so he's not saying, I don't know. He's just saying, look, not for you to know. You go and you do your business. You do what you're being asked, just like I did. Follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Allow him to guide you and work through you and work in you. Listen to him. You will do many miracles, great signs and wonders in greater volume than what I did because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't do any of those miracles. The Holy Spirit did. The um, apostles, the disciples, they're not doing any miracles. The Holy Spirit is. They they don't have that kind of power on their own. If they do, they would have, you know, been using it all along, but they didn't. Okay, so he is just showing us, and, and this is where you you do get this, um, you know, concept of this, uh, um, you know, the, the, the moral you know, view of the atonement that Christ, you know, perfectly obeyed and we should look at his life and we should perfectly obey. It lends credibility to that aspect of, of salvation. I think that we should, um, grab onto as incomplete as that, um, view is, I find it to be one of the weakest out of all of them. Uh, but it, it has a lot in there and especially for us here. So in conclusion with this, with, with Matthew, 24, not having nor the sun in there. Let's go back and look at it a little more carefully because there's something odd that's in there that we might not have seen. We went kind of fast through it. So listen carefully. I'm going to read the verse again. Chapter 24, verse 36. And especially listen to the last word that I say. But as for that day and hour, no one knows it, not even the angels in heaven, except the father alone. Why is the word alone in there? The word alone is in there. It's implying that it's only the father. Angels don't know, but what about the son? Well, the implication is that only the father alone knows the son does not, but why isn't the son in there? If somebody was going through and changing Matthew's gospel, that looks like they pulled that part out, nor the son. It feels like it should read, you know, but as for that day and hour, no one knows it, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, except the father alone. Or maybe we should read only the Father alone, okay? This way, nor the angels in heaven, you know, no one knows the hour, nor the angels in heaven, okay? No one on earth, Jesus is on earth at this time, not the angels in heaven, nobody in heaven, and it should just say, except the Father. But it says, except the Father alone. So why is that? Why it does that not fit, even if you put nor the sun in there, the sentence still doesn't really, doesn't work. It sort of does, but it, but it, it, it's, it's a little more stilted. And then the way it reads now doesn't seem to work as well either. 
Well, Dr. Dan Wallace, who is one of the top textual critics in the world, um, teaches at Dallas Theological Sem- Seminary, um, has his um, Center for New Testament Manuscript Studies. Uh, it's his uh, um, parachurch ministry. Um, they go around taking high-quality resolution pictures of ancient manuscripts and upload them for people to look at in the study and to preserve them digitally. Um, he uses, they use all sorts of neat little um, camera tricks that are available to us now that help um, for us to get some of the text that might be fading or something like that. And he finds very, they find very interesting things in there. He thinks that the person who changed this in the gospel of Matthew, he thinks that it was Matthew himself. He thinks that Matthew was reading Mark's gospel, copying from Mark's gospel, and that he dropped the nor the sun. Depending on when you date Matthew, okay, um, if Mark was first and Matthew and Luke used Mark and they were writing roughly at the same time, okay, Luke is, you know, writing an account for Theophilus, doesn't seem to be using Matthews. And, and the way we know this is because after you know, the, the, the abrupt ending of Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke seem to go in wildly different, um, directions, uh, when it comes to the, the narrative of the story and the, in the, 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 the stories that they choose to put in place, like the events as they occurred and in, in what order they, they just really seem to, uh, split apart right there, seem much more independent than, uh, the, the earlier parts. So, if he is reading Paul's letters, for example, before, um, you know, Luke writes, cause Luke was a companion of Paul and, you know, Paul was writing his letters to the different churches at the time. And, you know, some of his letters may have gone out before the gospel of Matthew was written. Some of them very theologically rich. Matthew may have been reading them and, you know, he's reading, you know, um, Mark's work. He is getting this understanding more and more of Jesus being the son of God. And he is writing to the um, Jews, Matthew's primarily for a Jewish audience and really showing that Jesus is in fact God. He is the son of God. God's all knowing. So it's very, very, um, probable that Matthew, the apostle, is the one who dropped nor the sun, but adds in the word alone, which Mark doesn't have. So, because Mark just has except the father. Okay. But Matthew adds that in to keep that authenticity and to keep that solidarity with Mark. But at the same time, showing that Jesus, in fact, is not ignorant, so to speak, of this, that he does have this element of divine, but he still wants to be honest with it. So I, I tend to agree with Dan Wallace. I, I see that in here and people are people. So after this break, we'll come back and we'll look at some more of our texts that have intentional errors. 
everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. So in this case, I, I guess we can see that, um, you know, it's not scribes that changed it, but maybe they, you know, added it into to Matthew because, hey, they were uncomfortable with it and, you know, not matching up with, with Mark and then, you know, wanting things to smooth things out that way. So it could actually have been Matthew that did it. And I think that's right. Um, the next one I want to look at is um, John... The first John, chapter five, verse seven and eight. This is known as the comma Johannum, or the uh, Johann comma, or the the comma of John, uh, John the Apostle's comma. Um, This is where a lot of people go to. It's kind of like okay, if if you wanted to prove to somebody the existence of the Trinity. Okay. The, that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons, father, son, and Holy spirit. And you had, to, and, and you had to pick a verse, which verse, you know, explicitly states that, well, a lot of people would go right to here because they would say that this is where we get the Trinity from. This is where we get the understanding of the Trinity from. Now, that might be where some people do, but historically that's not true. Um, when you look over the history of the church, that's not true. Also, um, the concept of the Trinity is that there is only one God. Um, you know, from uh, what is it, Deuteronomy six four, Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Um, and when they ask Jesus what the you know what what the, the what the, what the greatest law is, or, you know, they, they come to him and say, which is the most important and stuff. And, um, and, and he says, you know, the behold, uh, you know, hello Israel, you know, you believe that the Lord is one. Um, I'm messing that all up, but anyways, I didn't plan on going there, but anyways, the point is, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, the law and the prophets hang on this. So the concept of God being one, um, and being, uh, and being strict monotheists, this at the time of Christ, why, why is this on their mind, you know, so much? Why would there be such fighting against Jesus being divine if he's doing all these things? Well, again, it has to do with what's occurring at the time. Now, the destruction of the temple in um, 167 BC, it was, you know, the abomination that caused desolation, desolation, I can talk this morning. The abomination that causes desolation where um, you had the Maccabean revolts that took place and them, you know, winning and they had to spend the seven days consecrating the, um, the temple, rededicating it back to God. And, and um, they celebrate Hanukkah, you know, to commemorate that because they only had enough oil for one day, but it lasted for seven days miraculously. Um, but what that has to do with this is that people were asking the question, why did this happen to us in the first place? And before this time, they, the, the Israelites, the Jews were not 
what we would call monotheists as we know them today. Okay, monotheists believe that there is only one God. There is no other gods. Christians are monotheists. Okay, we believe that Yahweh is God. We but we are monotheistic Trinitarians, where someone like a a Muslim, a Mohammedan, is a monotheistic Unitarian. Jehovah Witnesses are monotheistic Unitarians. The um, Unitarian Universalist Church, it's in their name. They are monotheistic Unitarians, but they are more uh, modalist. Um, Patripassionism, they, they call it, that um, you know the, the God puts on different hats. One hat's of the Father, one hat's of the Holy Spirit, one hat's of the Son, and you know they and that's why if you ever see those memes where people are just like okay let me get this straight so you know god um you know creates stuff causes sin um then you know impregnates a young girl with himself so that he can be born to you know uh, die for himself so he can become his own like son or his own father so that he can, you know, die on behalf of himself in order to forgive himself for what he has. You know, I mean, they have like all these like crazy, you know, notions of, Hey, here's God just taking on different forms, you know, doing that. Well, that comes from a misunderstanding of the, the Trinity, but that's Unitarianism. Okay. So we are not Unitarians. We are Trinitarians. Um, so the Old Testament, when you read, the Israelites are not monotheists, monotheistic Unitarians. They are what's called henotheistic Unitarians. And the difference between monotheism and henotheism is this, that monotheism says there is only one God and that is it. Henotheism says that there are many gods, but not like polytheism. Henotheism is that there are many gods, but there is one God that is the greatest of all the other gods. If all these other gods exist, then this one God is the one who created them. Okay, so that's henotheism. There are lots of gods out there. My God's the greatest. A lot of Christians today and a lot of people in popular culture would probably be considered practicing henotheists. People that say, well, Allah and Yahweh are the same. You know, the God of Christianity and the God of Islam, they're the same God. Well, no, that's not true. Um, and any good Muslim and any good Christian would actually agree on the fact that that's not true. They would say, no, we have two completely different concepts of God. So they had all this henotheistic, uh, henotheistic ideas. Um, they said, you know what, that's what caused it. We tolerated these other gods. We, we even said that they were other gods, even when in the Old Testament... Yahweh himself says, I'm God, and even I don't know of any other gods. I mean, I know everything, and even I don't know if there's any other. And you're telling me that there's others? So they finally get this understanding of, okay, there is only one God, and that's it. And they become fiercely, fiercely monotheistic. Uh, they will not bow down to anything, and this is the culture of the time. So when Christ comes along, and he's claiming to be Yahweh in, in many different areas, you know, people want to stone him. People want to kill him for that. He's really irritating them. And even, I think it's in John uh, chapter 10, I think it's 1036 maybe, he says, um, you know, they, they pick up stones to stone him. And he says, why are you stoning me for all the good works that I've done? And they say, no, we're stoning you because you, a mere man, are claiming to be God. Because he's saying, by saying that you are the son of God, you are equating yourself with God. The son of someone is that person. They are the substance of them. 
not only the substance from them, but the substance of them. It is of their substance that they are made. So there's a direct equation when Jesus says that he is the son of God, that he is the son of man. And their understanding of the son of man from um, Daniel's prophecy is that it will be a divine figure. It will be God himself, more or less, that that is coming in judgment and all power. And why at his trial, they rip their clothes when he says that, you know, you will see the son of the man coming in clouds and on power to to judge you. And before this generation passes away, you know, the temple will be destroyed and, you know, all this stuff. And, and they, they rip their clothes and say, why do we need any more witnesses? He has blasphemed. He has admitted, we've all heard it himself. He's, you know, he's claiming to be God. This was the big problem. So the Trinity and the concept of it does not come from one isolated verse in, in the Bible. Okay. So when I, when we go over this, when we look at this Johannine comma from, um, First John chapter five verses seven and eight. This is not where the Trinity comes from. This is something that was put in. It was in the King James version of the Bible in the text from the Texas Receptus. And Erasmus is the one who wrote, you know, the Texas Receptus, the received text. He's the one that put it together. And the first couple versions of it did not have this wording in it, but people wanted it in there. They wanted it to explicitly talk about the Trinity. And it's rumored he'd said, hey, if there's one manuscript that's produced that has this in it, I'll put it in there. And they say that somebody found one and gave it to him, but I, I don't think that that happened. Other scholars, I'm not considering myself a scholar, but scholars consider um, that as well, that that, that that never, nobody produced anything. Somebody made something up and produced it and it, it was just added in. Um, but, but it reads as so in the King James Version, First um, John uh, chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and there, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit agree in one, and the water, and the blood, and these three, and these three uh, agree, or these three are one. My uh, my version uh, cuts off there that I have printed out here. Um, hang on, let me let me grab it so I can read it in you know, verbatim here. Okay, here it is in the King James version. Uh, For there are three that bear record in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth: the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. So. You know, if you were trying to prove to somebody that the Trinity, for example, you know, I'm trying to prove to you that there is one God and three persons. This is where I would go, you know, and this is where a lot of cults and everything, um, you know, like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons attack um, the, the the Bible and say that, well, your translation is wrong because, you know, this was added in. It's not found in blah, blah, blah. So um, the New American Standard Bible um, has it written like this. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and three are in agreement. And that's it. And that's all the more it says. The Net Bible says, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three are in agreement. That's it. So you would have to look at that and you would have to understand what does it mean that there are three that testify, you know, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three are in agreement? Well, of course, you know, context is always key in, you know, in, in everything that you're reading. And 
in John five or first John five, you know, he's talking about the testimony about the son. And if you go back to verse four, five, yeah, verse, verse four, where it's, um, you know, starting in, I guess, 4B technically. It says, this is the conquering power that has conquered the, the world, our faith. Now, who is the person who has conquered the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Okay, so John's argument here that he's trying to make is that Jesus is, in fact, God. Okay, equal, equal to God. Jesus Christ is the one who came by water and blood. And not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. So now, what John's leading up to, he's saying that, okay, Jesus is the Son of God, equating him with God, saying that he is Yahweh, okay? Not that he's the Father, but that he's, he's the son of God. He's, he's giving that uh, subject-object distinction between the father and the son, not saying that he's the father. By calling him the son of God is just like calling the father father of God. Okay? I mean, it's, it's more stilted. It doesn't have the same meaning, the same feeling. It's just, you know, it's one seems to be above the other. And, you know, it, it, when we get into Trinitarianism and we look at functional subordinationalism within the Trinity, um, that would, all that would make a lot more sense. But the point that I'm trying to make here with, with this verse is that, um, what John is saying is that here is Jesus and he is God. Okay. And he came by water and blood. Okay. Water and blood. So what does that mean that he came by water and blood? Okay. Um, he's not saying that, well, you know, he just came from, you know, where does, where does, uh, look at it like this. Where does water come from? It comes from the sky. Okay. At this time, that's how they were understanding it. Water comes from the sky. What comes from the sky? The son of man. Okay. That's where heaven is. That those are the heavens. That's the, the imagery that's used all through, um, you know, uh, the, the old Testament, you know, with the, um, the, the waters below and the waters above, like, you know, those, those sort of things. So it comes from above and the blood is what comes from humanity, what comes from people. Okay. So Jesus Christ is the one who came by both water and blood. Okay. Not by water only. Okay. But by water and blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. God is truth. God is, is true. We see that. So you see, here we have somebody talking as though you have the understanding of the concept of God, okay? And God the Father that Jesus prays to, that he taught us to pray our Father in, in the book of Matthew. Um, you know, so you have this understanding of God the Father. John is assuming that you have that understanding. And now he's putting to it God the Son, is here also. And God, the son was wrapped in human flesh. He was truly human and he was truly divine. He was both because he just, he didn't just come from above, but he came from both above and through us and with us. And the spirit is the, the third part. The spirit testifies because the spirit is truth and God is truth. And John understood just like the other apostles did that 
the Holy Spirit is God. If you read in the uh, the book of Acts, the narrative of the um, the people coming to him. Um, why do I want to say Ananias and Sapphira? It, it, that might be the ones, but um, it, where you know they were people were selling everything they have and bringing the you know the goods to um, you know, the money to the apostles, and you know you had you had a couple. The husband comes first and, you know, sold his, his land and, and gave a portion to the church. And he wanted to make it look like he was giving everything when he wasn't. And so Peter asked him, is this everything? And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 it sure is. And he's like, why, why are you doing that? You know, I mean, you sold it. It was yours. All this money is yours. You didn't have to give it to us. But yet you did. And, you know, and now you're hold, withholding it and you're lying and you're not lying to man, but you're lying to the spirit. And then, you know, he falls dead and it's taken away and his wife comes and she says the same thing. And he's like, don't you know, they're they're dragging your husband's body away. And here you are not lying to men, but you're lying to God. And he's equating God with the Holy Spirit. So the historical narrative of that time is that the apostles understood that the Holy Spirit is God. And so here you have John's writing and he is making that same assumption. The Holy Spirit is God. So verses seven and eight are really an afterthought of verses, you know, five and six. And it is more of the summary of what five and six, that's why the word four has been injected into, into, um, to seven. Um, it's, it's awkward in in the Greek for not to be there. I mean, you know, when we get into Emmanuelenses and and you know people that that wrote for the apostles and those sort of things, we'll, we'll talk about smoothing out of languages and stuff. But not all of them had perfect grammar. Not all of them were you know um, the best writers in the world. They were. I mean, you're talking about fishermen here. You know, different from like I said when you read Hebrews, which is very high Greek. So, with that in mind, with verses five and six in mind, okay, that. Um, now who is the person who has conquered the world? And they're talking, he's talking about us, except the person that believes that Jesus is the son of God, i.e. he is God, Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus Christ? Well, he came by water and blood. He's our representative. He is God in flesh that represents us. Okay. The father is God. We know that, you know, that the son is God. He did not come by, not by water only, but by water and blood did not come from above but came from above and from us to represent us and the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. Verse seven, for there are three that testify the spirit, which is God, the water, which is God above and the blood, which is God through us. And these three are in agreement. So who in John's understanding now is the God above the God from the, from water, from where water comes from above us, the father who is the God from blood that has come through us for our redemption, the son and the spirit. He outright names the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three are in agreement. They're in agreement as one. So, Whenever 
you know, you look at this and people say, well, I don't like these new translations. I stay with the King James version of it because, you know, when you change it, you are trying to diminish God and you are taking God out of there and you're denying the Trinity and all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. No, you're not. You're just getting back to what the original wording was. And there is no problem with the wording being the way that it is. It does not diminish the Trinity. It stays authentic. And the concept of the Trinity is in what's called the pericope, and that's the unit of thought. And this unit of thought here is this testimony that we just read and that we just broke apart. So it's much, much bigger than just, you know, these little verses and just that changing. The concept of Jesus Christ being God is all over the New Testament. It is not an isolated verse. But these are intentional errors that people did to try to make it easier for people to see, easier for people to understand, okay? Um, Next week, I'm going to talk about some more intentional errors. seems like we're going to spend a little bit of time in some of these intentional errors because I think that they're interesting and there's something that, you know, anti-theists or atheists may throw at you to try to say the Bible is a liar and you can't trust it, and therefore Jesus Christ never rose from the dead. And some people, if they don't have this level of study, if they don't have this level of understanding because of their their church or just because they're new Christians, will really start to doubt, and they may walk away from the faith, and it's unnecessary because, as we're able to show, um, this doesn't bear on that. And to just kind of finish up the, um, the the thought here, verse 9 says, If we accept the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, because this is the testimony of God that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony of in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has testified concerning his Son. And this test, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has eternal life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. That's the main thrust of this, and understanding the relationship of the Trinity within that. So next week, we're going to hit on Matthew. We're going to look at this concept of being born of a virgin and look back at Isaiah. But um, hey, I hope you're enjoying these theology pits. Please feel free to donate at samsonstick.com. Every donation helps, like my wife says in the uh, little uh, middle section there. It's not just money to us. It's an encouragement. Uh, Please drop me a line. Um, Like us on Facebook. Pass these around. Tell people about these podcasts. Um, You know, just share the podcasts as they come out on, on Facebook. Um, email me samson at samsonstick.com visit us at samsonstick.com let me know if there's anything that you want me to discuss anything that you want me to go over and um, just yeah just general uh, words of encouragement are always nice again um, donations are greatly appreciated buy me a cup of coffee that's the best way you can do it I love my coffee I'm sitting here slurping it now I'm gonna it's gotten a little cold right now but um I will uh, continue to, to slurp it. And now it is definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you. Thank you.